Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where the demons probably aren't real, but the murders are. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. Dude, you have got to stop telling people that. Um, what are we talking about? Mm. Well, we're going to talk about Amityville. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, Emily, you said this was horseshit like two weeks ago. And I did. However. And it is. <laughs> sometimes people can slightly change their minds. And sometimes the story is still good, even if it is kind of the result of a little bit to a lot bit of lying. So <laughs> I love I love the hedging going on there. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot bit. I have a whole, I'm not going to say manifesto at the end of this episode, but I do lay, like, what I believe out. Anyway, so, yeah, I can safely say that after viewing both Amneville horror movies, and by that I mean the 1979 one with uh, James Brolin and the 2005 one with Ryan Reynolds, um, watching documentaries, reading the Jay Anson book three times, and listening to literal hours of other podcasts on the topic <laughs> that... The story might be more complicated than I think some people make it out to be. Buckle in, guys. <laughs> yeah. Also, the DeFeo murders are way more interesting than the haunting, so we're going to spend a lot of time on that. Oh, boy. Um, actually, I would say most of the episode is going to be talking about the DeFeo murders, because again, way more interesting than the haunting. And no one ever talks about it. And when they do, it's all like changed up to fit like the plot of the movie that it's in, so... As is the way of Afternoonified, I am here to offer you a condensed version of everything so that you can be smart about it at parties with your weird friends. Yes, because, you know, you're going to be really cool if you show up at, you know, one of these post-vaccination parties and just talking about murder. Yes. I mean, if we were to go to a party with the people who are currently listening to this podcast, yes. Actually, yeah, they would probably find that very fascinating. That's but- why they're here. That's what this is. This is just a COVID-safe mixer. <laughs> Where we're the only ones talking. So everyone, grab a drink. I'm going to be doing this nice lavender honey cider today. Ooh, that sounds delicious. I know. (sighs) Amityville, Long Island. A great place to live, if I remember the sign in the 1979 movie correctly. More like a bad place to die, am I right? Wow. (laughs) We're off to a great start. I Like I was telling Sarah before we started, the notes were a struggle for me to write, because I had all the information from, like books and movies and documentaries in my head but the internet wasn't particularly helpful which i'm actually going to sign my sources right now because i just reminded myself so uh we have murderpedia.com the page for ronald defeo a website called amityvillemurders.com uh an article on oxygen um which i don't have the title to oh the true crime story behind the lutz family haunting the Amityville Horror House on Discovery Plus, The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, and The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna. So, Did sources. you consume all this media in the last week, or is this just, like, stuff you have seen? No, I consumed all this media in the last week. Oh, so you're insane now. Um, well, I had read the Jay Anson book twice before, and I had watched both of the movies before, but I decided to give them another go just so it was fresh. Oh, also, The Mothman Prophecies was really boring, you were right. Yeah, I told you. I warned you. Nothing happens. Yeah. No. He gets some spooky phone calls and his wife dies. 
And then the bridge collapses. Anyway, that's our review of Mothman prophecies in the middle of this Amityville episode. (laughs) I just needed background noise when I was doing notes. Guys, don't watch Mothman prophecies. It isn't even that good. It's not. It's not about the cool Mothman. It's about a dumb Mothman that just does nothing. I like creepy phone calls though. It was just like Richard Gere wasn't selling it. Like you could tell that he was doing this job because he needed like money. (laughs) You don't think he was sold by? No, I don't. The Mothman prophecies. I think Deborah Bessing had like two weeks off between uh, like filming Will and Grace seasons, and Richard <laughs> Gere like wanted a new car. Anyway, so Amityville, Long Island. All right. <laughs> At around six thirty p.m. on November thirteenth, nineteen seventy-four, twenty-three. Is that a year- Friday? I don't know. That's a good question, though. <laughs> you, you. Oh, what, what's the year? 1974, November 13th. Surely Google can tell us. Yeah, that's the first day of the week. Oh, it was a Wednesday. Mm. Bad day to die. Yeah. I was hoping, I mean, I feel like if it was a Friday, that would be played up in every story. Oh, definitely. Um, Anyway. So, anyway, 6.30 p.m., November 13th, 1974. 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. burst into Henry's Bar, which is now apparently a strip mall, uh, in Amityville, and declared, you've got to help me, I think my mother and father are shot. Which was true. However, one of Butch's friends, Bobby Kelsky, asked, are you sure they're not asleep? As if he wouldn't have checked. <laughs> uh, Butch assured him that they were not, and I am not kidding when I say this, Butch hopped in the back of his friend's Buick with five other guys and drove the one block to Butch's family home at 112 Ocean Avenue. I mean, this is this is why suburbs are, you know, suburbs are just built around cars. Uh, inside, the men found the bodies of Ronald DeFeo Sr., 43, Louise DeFeo, 43, and his four siblings, Don, 18, Allison, 13, Mark with a C, 12. I don't know why I said with a C. It is with a C, but that's not important. Uh, and John Matthew, 9. Following excerpt is a chapter from the book, is part of a chapter from the book, The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna, who, I will give him credit, he is very focused on getting the accurate story of the murders, even if it did involve talking to Ronald DeFeo Jr. a bunch, who's, we'll get into him. Maybe but an unreliable narrator in that, yeah. Probably, um, but he is also not a fan of the Lutz family. Um <laughs> Which is something Wait, Ron DeFeo see- or the author of the book? Both. Um, okay. Rick Asuna in particular. Something I've noticed is that there's there's no, like, middle-of-the-road feelings about anything. <laughs> it's always like, these fucking assholes did this. And it's like, calm down. Or like, I believe that everything is demons. So, yeah, that's that seems... That tracks. Begin excerpt. Uh, Before him lay Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise. A hole in the center of DeFeo Sr.'s bare back was the first indication that the couple was not sleeping. Dried blood had trickled out of the wound, disappearing beneath the obese man's blue boxer shorts. Oh, I should warn you, if you're a little squeamish, like, this entire episode's probably not for you. Um, In contrast, Louise DeFeo's wounds were not clearly ascertainable because her body was buried beneath an orange blanket as if she were protecting herself against the evening chill. Behind the bed was a mirrored wall, which eerily reflected the macabre scene. Seeing that Bobby was ready to pass out, the other men led him downstairs past the life-size portraits of family members that hung on the staircase wall. 
John Altieri remained on the second floor and checked out the northeast bedroom. Clipper ships, cannons, and eagles dotted the room's wallpaper. On the dresser to the left of the door lay several statues and figurines that one would expect to find in a devout Catholic home. Strewn across the floor were athletic shoes and toys, signaling that the bedroom belonged to a boy. Two boys, to be exact. On opposite sides of the room lay the bodies of two young boys, face down like their parents. In the bed on the left lay the body of John DeFeo, nine. Altieri could not pinpoint the bullet hole in John's back since the Knicks sweatshirt he was wearing was covered in blood. Mm. I know. In the other bed lay John's brother, Mark DeFeo, 12. Next to Mark's bed was a pair of crutches and a plain gray wheelchair. The boy had recently suffered a football injury and needed their assistance to get around. At the foot of his bed lay a crumpled up green and yellow bedspread and an orange blanket. This time, Altieri could make out a wound, a single bullet hole in the center of the boy's back. Ugh. So it's very sad that these children died. Sucks, really. Um, But one thing I did notice from looking at crime scene photos and the description that was laid out is that that house was ugly as fuck. (laughs) It was the 70s. What do you expect? It was aggressively 70s, just like puke (laughs) green and like you know orange everywhere it's cool that this was your takeaway from the crime scene photos of i have become sensitive no i'll i'll find some like photos of just, i'm like, laughing about it so it was it was ugly the wallpaper was ugly like ronnie defeo jr's bedroom had like this polka dot wallpaper that was like red and orange and oh my god like i can see why it was selling for such a low price like it was fucking ugly <laughs> It yeah, was, definitely definitely the decor and not the murders. Yeah. DeFeo's friend Joey Yeswit made an emergency call to the Suffolk, Suffolk County Police Department, who searched the house and confirmed that the entire family, Sands Butch, were in fact dead. All of the victims had been shot with a thirty five caliber rifle around 3 o'clock in the morning of that day, November 13th. Uh, the DeFeo parents had both been shot twice, while all the children had been killed with single shots, with evidence suggesting that Louise and Allison were both awake at the time of their death. Uh, still on their stomachs, but, um, like, Louise had, like, a blanket pulled over her like she was trying to hide, and honestly, oh. it was hard for me to look at Allison's crime scene photo for long enough to determine what was going on. Yeah, that's not cool. No, it's not. No, that's an understatement, but... Uh- <laughs> Um, so, some background on the DeFeo family. Uh, Ronald Big Ronnie DeFeo Sr., I know. It's just, like, super aggressively, like, 70s Long Island. Uh, so, Big Ronnie and Louise Brigante were what I can only describe as vaguely trashy, like, super rich. Because uh, Amityville is a really nice, like, I guess not really, it's an affluent community. Yeah, that's the impression I've always got. Yeah. It's like people with boats who, like, go to, you know, white parties and stuff. Mm-hmm. Not, like, quite the Hamptons, but that kind of, like, we're fancy. So, in their day, both parents were described as being very attractive and coming from well-off families. Louise's family, in particular, was very well-off. And, unfortunately, the Brigantes didn't much like Big Ronnie. I wonder why. <laughs> and they caught all ties with their daughter and her husband until the birth of their first child, Ronald Jr., in 1951. Jeez. I know. I was going to say, that just lays out some nice, healthy family dynamics. That's oh, cool. Oh, just wait. It's going to get worse. Actually, at no point in the story do things get better. The story starts with six dead bodies. So by almost all accounts, Big Ronnie was an asshole who routinely beat his wife and at least his oldest son. 
Uh, Louise's brother, Michael Brigante Jr., would later testify at the DeFeo trial about the incident, about an incident that he witnessed when Butch was two. Uh, he said, We were all sitting in the basement watching TV, and, I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Christ. Direct quote. Direct quote. So, theoretically, we have a head trauma in uh, Ronnie I mean, Jr.'s. It's never great to hit your head. Yeah, it's never good when you hit your head, but that is, like... A recurring factor in a lot of people who commit, like, very violent crimes and murders is that they have a head trauma. So if this is what Big Ronnie was doing when, like, the family that he knew didn't like him was over, I I can't imagine what he was doing when no one was there. Yeah, that doesn't strike me as, like, a one-time thing. Oh, no. No. Um, Many, many people have testified that um, Big Ronnie... It feels weird to call such, like, an unbelievable shithead Big Ronnie... But it is probably the easiest way to distinguish between. Yeah, there's Big Ronnie and Butch. Uh, so in 1965, just before John was born in October, the DeFeos moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue, where they would obviously remain until their deaths in 1974. Why would Butch want to mur- murder his entire family? Like, his dad, sure. But why all of them? Because why do men do anything? It's true. I don't, I don't know. Like, I do not have a solid answer. Um... There are so, so many elements at play and so many stories from uh, Butch and his super creepy lawyer that it could be anything. Like, he's changed his story so many times. What reasons has he given? Just out of curiosity. We're going to get into a couple of them. Okay. So I'm going to try to do my best to, like, bring you the, the most accurate to my knowledge facts, but who knows. So at first, Butch claimed the killings were committed by mob hitman Louis Fellini, as retribution. And I've heard a source say that it was because Butch called Fellini a cocksucker, but I can't actually remember where that came from so I could verify it. I know the mob is mean, but <laughs> it feels like an overreaction. <laughs> yes. Um, everything in the story is an overreaction. Literally all of it. So the police were like, oh no, the mob. And because that was very plausible at the time, they took Butch into protective custody. Of course. But, of course, they just had to do some minor checking into it, and Fellini had an alibi, like he was out of the state. And a pretty basic interview with Butch revealed that his story had more holes than a block of Swiss cheese. So, isn't it like a thing, like, the mob doesn't go after your family? Theoretically. I don't know. I'm literally basing this off of, like, mob movies, but... Yeah, we'll have to do, like, a mob episode at some point, or, like, find someone to do a mob episode. Butch later confessed to committing the murders himself. Um, and he admitted, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Uh, so he admitted that he had taken a bath and redressed and detailed where he had discarded crucial evidence such as bloodstained clothes and the rifle and cartridges uh, before he went to work, as usual. Initially, after his big mob lie, he admitted that he did all of it himself. And how long did it take before he uh, took that all back? Well, during his trial, the defense tried to put forward the insanity plea, which it that makes sense. Yeah. Claiming that Butch had acted in self-defense because he heard voices telling him that his family was plotting to kill him. The insanity plea was supported by the psychi- psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Schwartz. But the psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan, maintained that although DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, and I think cocaine, 
He had antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time of the crime. Yeah, there's very little. I mean, you can still have, like, like, clearly, he clearly does have some mental issues, but that, yeah, it's still murder. Well, antisocial personality disorder isn't, I mean, obviously, it's not an excuse for murder. Like, there are people out there who have antisocial personality disorder that, like, live not perfectly normal lives in the normal, like, in the sense of, like, neurotypical people, but they but don't, don't murder their whole family. They families. don't murder anybody. They don't do anything wrong. They just have antisocial personality disorder. So, not an excuse. He was convicted on November 21st, 1975, on six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 to life, with chance of parole. Seems fair. Yeah. Uh, So the easiest and, like, my personal preference for an answer why he would do that was that he was, you know, completely strung out on a combination of cocaine, heroin, and acid, and it was aggravated Mm -hmm. by his existing mental condition. Um, And he experienced a break after years of abuse from his father and generally being very unhappy. And he had sought help for mental issues multiple times, and the specialist that he had visited with his parents years before had even warned Louise and Big Ronnie that their son was dangerous and probably would kill them. Glad they nipped that one in the bud. Yeah, I think it was one of those, like, no son of ours is going to have mental problems, because it was, you know, the 60s and 70s, and yeah. that wasn't an accepted thing. So if he had been, like, put away for treatment, this never would have happened, I believe. Well, no. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, There was also the potential of a very sizable insurance payout, which doesn't really explain why he killed his siblings, except maybe to make sure he was the only one who got the money or to take out witnesses. Yeah, witnesses. And like, I can't imagine you'll want to then be responsible for all your siblings. Yeah. Like, that's the extremes you're going to. I feel like you probably don't have that kind of bond. Oh, yeah. Later, uh, Herman Reyes, a former New York City supervising police detective, was hired by Michael Brigante Sr., uh, Butch's grandfather, to investigate the murders. Uh, Brigante testified at the trial that he did not feel that his grandson acted alone in the crimes, and since he didn't feel that he had done, like, that Butch had done what he was accused of, uh, Brigante wanted Reyes to prove or disprove the case. Like, he just wanted to find more evidence that pointed towards Butch not doing this or Butch not acting alone. Um, so Reyes eventually uncovered evidence that showed there were multiple gunmen and at least two guns used during the commission of the crime. And these claims were allegedly confirmed by the medical examiner and the prosecution. Um, and this just opened the gates for DeFeo to come up with a bunch of different fucking stories. Mm, great. Yep. So in a 1986 interview for Newsday, DeFeo claimed that his sister Dawn had killed their father, and then their distraught mother had killed all of his siblings, apparently with a 38 caliber revolver, before Butch killed his mother. Hmm. What, what do I believe? Exactly. Hmm. Like, the way the bodies were found, face down, no signs of a struggle. I'll get into it later. Yeah. I feel like, not that, like, Occam's razor is the end-all be-all, but I feel like that the simplest, you know, series of events is usually the most correct. In this case, yes. Um, So Butch stated that he took the blame because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother to her father, his grandfather, uh, Michael Brigante Sr., and his father's uncle out of fear that they would kill him. And his father's uncle was Peter DeFeo, a member of the Genovese crime family, so, like, maybe... Yeah, that seems tenuous to me. I'm coming from a place where I'm giving this guy no credit. Like, Yeah, no, he's a piece of He killed of his whole family. The, the end. In, in the same interview, DeFeo also claimed that he was married at the time of the murders to a woman named Geraldine Gates, with whom he was living in New Jersey. 
and that his mother had phoned to ask him to return to Amityville to break up a fight between Don and their father. So he drove to Amityville with Geraldine's brother, Richard Ramondo, who was with him at the time of the murders, and could verify his story completely. I hope you all have your Pepe Silvia boards out, because this is where we're going. Oh, boy. In 1990, DeFeo filed a 440 motion, which was a proceeding to have his conviction vacated. In support of this motion, DeFeo said that Don and an unknown assailant, who had fled the house before he could get a good look, killed their parents, and Don killed their siblings. This is his why. Thir- this is his fourth story, by the way. What? Why? <laughs> I don't. I don't follow. I. I probably shouldn't even bother trying to follow that. But really, so Butch said the only person he killed was Don, and that it was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. And again, he said he was married to Geraldine, and that her brother was with him at the time of the murders. An affidavit from Richard Romando was submitted to the court, though he could not be located to testify in person. Hmm. Um, Evidence was submitted to the court by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office suggesting that Richard Momondo did not exist and that Geraldine Gates was living in upstate New York married to someone else at the time of the murders. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. I'm not surprised by that at all. (laughs) Uh, Geraldine Gates did not testify at this hearing because the authorities had already confronted her about the lies. Sorry, false claims. And in 1992, secured a statement under oath where she admitted that Romando was fictitious and that she did not actually marry DeFeo until 1989 in anticipation of the 440 motion. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for the fifth story? Oh my god, this guy. So in an alleged, and I say alleged because DeFeo later claimed that he had refused to speak with Rick Asuna. Uh, so in an alleged interview with Rick Asuna... DeFeo said that he had committed the murders with his sister Don and two friends, Augie DeGenero and Bobby Kelsky, who, if you remember, I think I mentioned Bobby's name specifically, is part of the group of six people that drove a block to go check the bodies. They committed the crimes out of desperation because his parents had plotted to kill him. DeFeo claimed that, after Don had a fight with their father over moving to Florida with a boyfriend... He and his sister planned to kill their parents and that Don murdered the children in order to eliminate them as witnesses. He said that he was enraged on discovering his sister's actions, knocked her unconscious onto her bed, and shot her in the head. Police found traces of unburned gunpowder on Don's nightgown, which some say she proved she fired a weapon. However, a ballistics expert, expert testified that unburned gunpowder is just our dis- I can't talk. I'm so into it and I can't talk. Um, so a ballistics expert testified that unburnt gunpowder is discharged through the muzzle of a weapon when it's fired. So it just indicated that she was in proximity to the muzzle of the weapon when it was discharged, not that she fired it, which she was obviously in proximity to the weapon. (laughs) I give zero credence at all to any gunpowder residue sort of evidence. Nope. Uh, Moreover, the medical examiner found nothing to indicate that Dawn had been in a struggle. The bullet wound was the only fresh mark on her body. Yeah. (sighs) All right. One more. Christ. One more story. (laughs) There have also been some claims of a version where Butch was hanging out in the basement, watching a movie called Castle Keep, which I have not seen, but it looks pretty trippy. Um, Probably off his nuts on acid. And he said that a demon woman in white came to him and handed him a shotgun and told him what to do. This obviously sounds like a lot of horse shit, though. This is uh, this is more believable than some of the other stories, though, to be completely honest. <laughs> well, there are two facts 
in the case that the give me pause on this, I don't think it happened. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> However, maybe he thought it happened. Exactly. I don't think so. Like clearly, he would have said something earlier, and this is just him. But he did say that straws, the voices had told but- him to to kill his family, but. I feel like that was just to, to bolster the insanity plea. Yeah. Um, so two things. One, none of the neighbors heard a single gunshot during this entire murder. And, I mean, this is weird because shotguns are super fucking loud and the house wasn't in a remote area at all. It was, like, in a mm-hmm. in a neighborhood. Like, you could wave to a neighbor. What time of night was it? Uh, about 3.15 in the morning. Okay. I mean, that doesn't really surprise me. I feel like people are less observant than they give themselves credit for. Especially, uh, I mean, it's weird, but I can get it. I get it. People did hear the sound of the DeFeo's sheepdog Shaggy barking at that time, though. So yeah, they did dogs hear are s- annoying. <laughs> they did hear sounds from the house, but it was just the dog barking. And there was no silencer used, because I don't think you can put a silencer on a shotgun. No. Like, someone correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know a lot about guns. No, that's not a thing. The second thing is that there are no signs of a struggle. Like, with some unspecified indicators that Allison and Louise may have been awake, all of the bodies were found on their stomachs, there was no indication that they were moved, and there was no trace of any sort of sedative in their system. Although, I will say that there are some that regular test, like some sedatives that regular tests don't pick up or that may have not been detectable with 1970s technology, but right. I didn't Google what those might be because I, I cannot be higher up on a watch list. <laughs> well, here's what I think, because I've heard this before, too. And mm-hmm. you you would expect people to be fighting back, to be running, but sometimes like that's just not what people do in that situation. Like, it's fight or flight or freeze, right? Yeah. It's entirely likely to me that like the parents probably it happened too fast and that all the kids just didn't like just didn't react like just they'll froze yeah and like he he killed his father first mm-hmm. uh obviously and then i think his mother heard and like pulled the blanket over herself so she was awake um but then the, the two boys i think were just very deep asleep and clearly the shotgun wasn't making a loud noise somehow i don't know how um if you're like, in deep sleep sometimes like Shit just doesn't... Maybe they were all very hard sleepers. Yeah. And then Allison may have have woken up a little bit. So, like I said, I I don't think a demon, like, cast a spell over the family to keep them asleep. And I don't think um, Butch drugged them. It just... It was kind of interesting. Yeah. And I was going to say, just because there's possible explanations for it doesn't mean it's any less weird. Exactly. And now I have to mention this next part because I referenced it later in my notes and I can't think of a way around it. Oh, boy. Uh, So there were rumors in certain very deep circles of a seventh body in the house, um, or possibly evidence that Allison's body had been moved and staged due to a photo of a bloody girl laying face up on a bed that was found in the collection of crime scene photos. And this circulated, like this theory circulated for a while. Like it looked like it might've been Allison. It didn't look like it was in a room of the house that was like that existed. It was just a misfiled photo from an unrelated murder. (laughs) That seems likely to me, yes. Yes. So, nothing ever came of all of Butch's stories, and he stayed in prison until March of 2020, when he died of unspecified causes. God, that's more recent than I thought. Yeah. Um, March 12th, 2020. Maybe it was COVID. Maybe COVID I was going to say, that's literally the day we went into lockdown. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's the murders. Easily the most interesting part of the Amityville story. 
We are actually going to get to the haunting. I know everyone is just like peeing themselves with excitement. (laughs) I feel like that's probably what everyone came here for. But here's the thing. The only full account, like full account I have ever seen of the haunting, even with going several pages deep on like search results, was in Jay Anson's book. The actual, like the famous, yeah. Yeah, the Amityville Horror, the one that like, the, the book that launched a thousand, you know, satanic panics. (laughs) Uh, everyone seems to gloss over things and the screenwriter from the movie even admitted that he fancied things up even more from the book which that it's fine that's how movies work but yeah the fact is that it is very hard to find a quote-unquote reliable source for what actually went on in that house because jay anson also like dolled the story up a little bit so as far as i know the Lutzes have never sat down and fully told their story. Their story has only been told through other people who have had their opportunity to embellish it, which I find to be very weird. Because mm. the Lutzes, like, they they talk to some people about it after it happens. Like, I'm not absolving them of, like, getting into it for the book deal and stuff, but they stopped wanting to talk about it. They sued a lot of people for breach of privacy and stuff for, like, bugging them. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, so that being said, um, we'll get into the, the story as I can tell it. So a year and a couple months later, in December of 1975, so like literally a month after Butch DeFeo was um, sentenced. Oh boy, that's very soon. <laughs> yes, it's incredibly soon. So the Lutz family packed up their house in Deer Park, Long Island and set sail for greener pastures in Amityville. Um, So Kathy, 29, and George, 28, were both on their second marriage, having been married to each other in July of that year. Uh, Kathy had three kids from her previous marriage, Daniel, 9, Chris, 7, and Missy, 5. And George had a Malamute lab mix named Harry, who is the only person in the family that didn't annoy me at some point during the book and or movies. (laughs) (laughs) Harry is a a hero. He is a very good boy. So the family had been looking to move out of George's house in Deer Park, presumably needing more space since going from a single dude in his 20s with a dog to a full-ass family. Family of of five. Yeah. That's Um, too many people. It's too many children. Um, So they didn't have a ton of money, but managed to find 112 Ocean Avenue for $80,000. I mean, that's still pretty steep. I feel like, are you doing the conversion on that? Yes, ma'am. I should have before, but so this is 1975 money. That comes out to about $397,000. Okay, no, that's it's a fucking steal. Reasonable. Yeah. This is a huge house, affluent like town. It has a pool, it has a boathouse, has a finished basement. Um I want to say it was uh, four bedrooms, five bedrooms because they had um George and Kathy's room. Missy had her own room. The boys shared a room. They had a sewing room, which was Don's old bedroom, and then, like, a dressing room. Jeez. It's a big fucking house. Yeah. So, for, for that amount of money, like, that's insane. Because uh, it was worth, like, twice that. Yeah, and I'm sure today it... Actually, let me do some Zillow. 112 Ocean Avenue, you said? Yeah, it's not... That's not the address anymore, because um, owners after the Lutzes moved out had the address changed because people were peeping too much yeah that's smart because i know it was just on the market uh yeah a couple years ago i think it sold for eight hundred thousand or something yeah that sounds about right but that number is skewed because it is a 
quote unquote notoriously haunted famous house. So who knows? <laughs> but the fact is, it was still pretty expensive for them. But since the house was worth more than that, it was big enough. It was in a nice area. Like they were having the realtor was having trouble selling it. They shuffled some finances around and bought it. And the realtor did inform the family of the murders, but they decided that it was something that they could live with. And honestly, if I could get a house that big for that much, I would also live with it. Yeah, I I probably would just go with it, honestly. Especially, well, you know, I'm pretty fairly a skeptic anyway, so. It's definitely got bad energy, though. Oh, yeah, no, serious bad juju in there. Like, it at least needs saged. So... They also negotiated for a couple pieces of furniture to be thrown in, which included some appliances, a dining set, and a girl's bedroom set for Missy. Oh, that's where the ghosts come in. Oh, just wait. It's, it is worth noting that the bedroom set probably, probably wasn't one used by Allison or Dawn at the time of their murder. Um, when I was investigating the whole seventh body thing, I found a note that there was an unused girl's bed in the basement. I'm also not sure what makes bedroom furniture inherently gendered, but that's what everyone kept calling it, so... It, I mean, it might have had a little girlish flair to it. That makes sense to me. It also yeah. feels like, yeah, probably... Because all the girls were older, right? So maybe it was something they had grown out of at one point, but the family yeah, hadn't gotten rid was, of yet. Allison was 13 and Dawn was 18. So, yeah, yeah it might have been, like, a little girls, because Missy was only five. Mm-hmm. Um, So, it's creepy, but not, like, that creepy. I think they got all of that furniture for $400, Nice. Which, I, it included, like, a freezer, like, a washer and dryer, um, the dining set, and that's... Dining set alone. Yeah, I mean, that's... It comes out to being about $2,000 in today money. So, the family moved in on December 18th, and the nonsense started almost immediately, according to them. On day one, Harry tried to jump over a fence while still attached to his chain. Uh, he was fine. They caught him. Um, and I also just want to... Like, let you know, Harry is going to be fine. He makes it out of the... Like, I know in the Ryan Reynolds movie, Harry did not make it out of the movie, but he's fine. That's just cruel on behalf of part of the filmmakers. Um, Actually, George Lutz sued Warner Brothers after that movie because of how violent they portrayed George Lutz in that movie and how, like, he didn't kill the family dog with an axe. The movie is not that good. I see why that would be upsetting. If you were portrayed in a movie that way. Yeah, I love the shit out of Ryan Reynolds. The movie is not that good. Who's the wife in that one? Uh, Melissa George. Okay. She's a nice blonde lady. Yeah, I feel and, like uh, I've seen her in things. Oh, you definitely have. She was in Sugar and Spice, which I'm realizing now that I've said that is kind of a deep cut. No, that's a bank robbing cheerleaders, right? Yes! <laughs> I've definitely seen that at least once. I fucking love that movie. Um, and then uh, Chloe Moretz is is she plays Missy in there, who's called huh. Chelsea, because in all of the movies they have to change the name of the kids, but they keep Makes the last sense, name. But yeah, yeah, film law is weird. Um, but uh, Kathy and George they keep their names in all of the versions. Anyway, so Harry is fine. <laughs> so what follows is a partial list of occurrences that the Lutz family claimed happened in the twenty eight days that they resided in the house. It is mostly from memory, because I couldn't find a written account of things specifically online, and I only had access to the audiobook. But this is where, like, if you have any questions, or want any details, or you remember something that you heard might have happened, like, just bring it up. Gotcha. So there's the the big story of the priest and the flies, which the priest and uh, the yes. flies never coincided. There were flies, 
And there was a priest, but not at the same time, if, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so on the first day, Father Pecoraro, <laughs> which is a great name, and his real name, they changed it in the book to, I can't recall, something, something a less, less Italian. Something less Italian and silly than Pecoraro. <laughs> Uh, so he was a friend See, of George's. Type of cheese? So Father Pecoraro was a family friend. Uh, George was a Methodist, and Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic who had a different parish priest. But they invited him to stop by and bless the house, because that's, that's what you do with a new house. That's what I would do. I like, Yeah, also not a practicing Catholic, but if I bought a murder house, it would get the hell blessed out of it. I'd have a Literally. priest there. I'd have a rabbi. I'd have Sadie come with like a bunch of different stuff to burn. Brings, yeah, make Sadie come with all the crystals we bought her. <laughs> so Father Pecoraro said that when he reached the room that used to be Dawn's, uh, that he heard a voice that ordered him to get out. Um, and then he allegedly experienced a weeks-long battle with the flu, as well as blisters on his hands and a horrible smell in his apartment at the rectory. Spooky. Right. Oh, and as far as the flies go, like, the Lutzes went up to what would have been Dawn's room a couple times, and there were a bunch of flies. And it was December, so that's weird. So then there's the issues with the phone. So after the priest left, whenever George or Kathy or the father would try to reach each other, the phone would cut out and die if they got too far into discussing the haunting. Into a very proactive ghost. <laughs> Get your name out of my mouth or <laughs> out of your mouth. Uh, so then there's the stuff with the doors and the windows, which in what I recall as being an almost nightly occurrence, the doors and windows in the house would fly open and sometimes with doors coming off their hinges. Damn. This also happened in December in New York. So not for nothing, the temperature inside the house suffered drastically. I would imagine so, yeah. But, like, with all of the, the... You'd expect there to be some damage to the the windows and doors and stuff. None reported after after they moved out. Um, so then there are Kathy's experiences in, in the kitchen, where she said that she experienced a gentle and motherly presence uh, multiple times, and that she also frequently smelled very cheap perfume. That was cheap perfume. And she, it, it was a sort of ghost that uses nice perfume? No. Yeah, I I also would have no idea. Like, if you would ask me, I would never be able to distinguish between cheap or expensive perfume. I think I would if it was, like, a Walmart brand as compo- like compared to, like, Chanel. Mm-hmm. But I, I've also, like, made perfume, so I, I have a fancier nose. No, I was going to say, you're much more sensitive than... Um, I'm also really picky about smells in general. Um, so then George had his own experiences. He had, I, I would say he had a harder time than than the others in the house. Um, so during his time in the house, he seemed to grow progressively more irritable and generally just really aggro. Um, he also continuously stoked the fire, claiming he couldn't get warm and woke up frequently at 3.15 a.m., which, as we've discussed, was the alleged time of the murders. Um <gasps> Uh, he was also dr- drawn inexplicably to the boathouse, which a uh, thing that was never explained in any way. Like, there is no reason that he would have Say been no connection the between the boathouse and the murders, as far as no. you know. Um, and towards the end of their stay, he experienced nightmares where he saw things happening in the house. Um, Chris and Danny also had some temper issues. They fought with each other more, and it was a little more violent. And I believe it was Chris had a window closed on his hand, though it, it didn't actually break anything. Um, and all of the children reportedly started sleeping on their stomachs, much in the way that all of the DeFeo children were found. Uh, as someone who was a side sleeper for all of my life and then has, like, to, in my old age, flipped over to my stomach. 
Oh, yeah. Now I sleep flat on my goddamn face. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Jody the demon pig. The fucking pig. This is, yeah, this is the big one that I always, so, that creeped me out as when I was a kid. So Missy claimed to have an imaginary friend, uh, an angel, she said, uh, called Jody, who took the form of a a pig that she described as being either very small or as big as a house. Um, and Jody had red eyes. Uh, this is she, creepy as hell, but also, like, yeah. all children have creepy imaginary friends. Oh, definitely. It's <laughs> not yeah. out of the norm by any um, means. She said that Jody wanted her to stay with the sad little boy who lived in the house. Uh, and George and Kathy claimed to have seen red eyes in Missy's room and found hoof prints in the snow outside. Okay, that's creepy. For some reason, in the 2005 mo- movie, they didn't, like, Jody was in it, but she was, like, a fictional younger DeFeo child, and they didn't do the pig thing at all, which I think is ridiculous. The pig thing is what makes it creepy. Yeah, if it's a little girl, like, who gives a shit? Yeah, like, boring. Like, the fact that it was, like, a pig that talked and had glowing red eyes, like, that's scary. Exactly. I don't know why that's scary. It's just more scary. Yeah, I mean, pigs are Probably cute as shit, just- but so bizarre yeah i think it's the 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 high strangest factor of it like why a pig um i think that the phrase that he can be as big as a house was the one that like made my skin crawl like a size changing pig and then the next the next occurrence uh inexplicably kathy had given george a ceramic lion statue as a gift at some point before they moved into the house I'm sure he loved it. I'm sure it was treasured. Yeah, as a birthday gift. I don't know, it was the 70s, like, maybe he was into it. But I've known 28-year-old men and a ceramic lion statue, not... (laughs) (sighs) I mean, that's something I would have been into when I was, like, ages 9 to 11. Depending on the statue, like, I could find a place for it in my apartment. I have a ceramic owl statue. Yeah, but, like, that's... Something I buy myself because I have a <laughs> sense of aesthetic. Like, if someone just bought me a random ceramic lion statue, I'd be like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> anyway, so this statue is said to have moved around the house and at one point leaving marks on George's ankle when he tripped over it. Like bite marks? Yep. Creepy. Um, then there's the black toilets, which one day, all of a sudden, all what? the toilet... Yeah. One day, all of the toilet bowls were suddenly stained black. hate that. Yeah, it was apparently very hard to clean. That's all I got on it. Like, it was black, it was hard to clean. And the family also said that on more than one occasion, they found a gelatinous green slime on the walls. That just makes me think of D&D. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> I want to say in the book that... the I'm going to say the character of George in the book, because whatever but he george tasted the slime and it was Why? tasteless i don't know there are so many dumb shit things that they do in that book which i understand like this is before the haunted house genre like really had legs so it didn't there weren't like cliches or like dumb things but just as a general statement you don't put a mysterious substance in your fucking mouth no especially yeah no that's never gonna be anything good no it's never like a biscuit on several nights during the latter half of their stay george says that he was a uh he woke up at around 3 15 to what sounded like a marching band tuning up downstairs but the sound always stopped when he went to go check on it interesting um and on new year's eve i think kathy and george found the image of a white-faced demon with half its head blown away burned into the back of their fireplace and the image apparently just stayed there uh 
Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that the stuff that was detailed in the book wasn't creepy. Like, it's a good story. It, it was like I don't believe any of this, and I can think of explanations for it. But like, it, it's creepy. That doesn't make it not creepy. And then at some point, the family discovered a hidden room in the back of a closet that was painted red from floor to ceiling. And I use the word "room" very loosely because it sounds like a glorified walk-in closet that just wasn't right. on the blueprints. Because it was described as being like there was a like a little closet in the basement that could be used as like a pantry, and then. Mm-hmm. Like, the back of the wall was just a piece of plywood that was blocking off, like, more of the room. So I think it was just a walk-in closet that they, like, made smaller. Yeah, or blocked off at some point for some reason. And if I'm not mistaken, like, that has been confirmed to have been a real thing. Like, I don't know if it was necessarily painted red, but there was, like, a larger closet in the basement. Now, you might be getting into this. Bleeding walls. Nope. Is that not a thing in the story? Nope, just the green slime. Oh, weird. Could have sworn that this story had bleeding walls in it, but... Mm. I mean, I could be conflating it with any number of haunted house stories, so yeah, that wouldn't surprise no, they me. Just had, it might have happened in a movie. Um, I don't think it happened in the 79, and I... I haven't seen that either, so... Oh, the 79 one's fine. It's like that kind of like low-key 70s horror, so it's not too scary. Um, I don't particularly love either of the movies just because George's journey of becoming more and more violent, like, makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I was a little scared of Ryan Reynolds for a couple years in the early 2000s because of it. Yeah, I remember when that one came out and just, I was not, super not into horror movies then at that point anyway, but, like, just the whole idea just turned me off. Yeah, I mean, like, it's worth a watch. They're both on HBO right now, but, like, there are other movies that I like more than them. So, the the Lutzes also had several visitors during their time in the house. Even though they did describe this feeling of, like, not wanting to leave the house, like, they felt like they needed to stay and they just didn't have the drive to, like, go to work or go grocery shopping and stuff. Which I found was really weird, but I've also been depressed before, so, like... (laughs) So the Lutz had several visitors during their time in the house, and Kathy's mother and her uh, aunt, who was a former nun, both felt very uncomfortable in the house. And so did the girlfriend of one of George's employees, who claimed to be a psychic. Um, and this this woman made it up to Dawn's old room. She was quiet for a little bit, and then she left the house immediately and refused to ever come back. So that was weird. And then Kathy's brother and her sister-in-law also had their own experiences. Uh, the day of her brother's wedding, uh, he stopped by to pick the family up to go to the ceremony. And at some point during the time, an envelope containing $1,500 disappeared from the pocket of his coat. And you may be wondering, why did this man have $1,500 in the pocket of his coat? It was the rest of the deposit for the catering. Ah. Um, and they never found it. Mm. And later, while staying the night in Missy's room, which I think was the DeFeo boys' old room, maybe? It may have been Ronnie's old room. I don't have specifics on that. Anyway, Kathy's sister-in-law said that she was woken up in the middle of the night by a little boy at the foot of her bed asking for help. Oh, boy. And that is one that makes sense to me. (laughs) You know? I mean, it makes sense both in, like, a haunting perspective, as in, like, that is a haunting thing that would happen given the story, but also, like, I can see you knowing the story of the house and having to spend the night there and getting your imagination worked up and then waking up in the middle of the night. Yeah. yeah. And then having that weird dream slash being awake state where you see things. Yeah, in a house where you already feel uncomfortable, because that that house is full of bad vibes, like, no getting around that. 
Um, and then, yeah, like when I stayed the night at your house, like your house doesn't have weird vibes, but I had been on a plane all day and we watched, I don't remember what we fucking watched, but like, I think we watched the Ouija board movie. One of them, the one that took place in the sixties. Oh damn. We did watch that one. So yeah, like my brain was being all fucked up that night. I find that like, I definitely went through a phase where, um, God, it probably was like my early teens when I was like really scared of horror movies. <laughs> like, but whenever I stayed anywhere that was in my own house and even in my own house, I think I just like got myself worked up. But like always like that was such a concern. Like, what if this place is haunted and I see a ghost? <laughs> oh, no, I went through that with my grandma's attic. Like, you know, nothing, nothing ever happened there. But it's just like mm-hmm. the, the vibe, like the vibe can have a big impact on your brain. And when your brain is asleep, it's just kind of like doing whatever the fuck it wants to do. Yep. So on more than one occasion, George said that Kathy levitated off the bed in her sleep. And when I say that George and Kathy said that this happened, I'm it's what was in the book. I don't know. Right. You're assuming that because it made it in the book that they had told they the author it. of the book that it had happened. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to parse without. Yeah. Without like the independent confirmation from George exactly. and Kathy, like, you don't know what they told the guy and what the guy added in as an embellishment. George also described an incident where he saw her as a very gross, very old woman, which I think he was just, like, half a... That's just being sexist. <laughs> uh, Kathy also experienced waking up one morning with a series of very hot red lines on her torso that faded over the course of several hours. And when I say hot, I mean that no one could, like, touch them. Like, they were... They had a heat to them. Yes, they were very, very hot to the touch. Interesting. Yeah, I can't think of, like, a medical thing that would cause that, but I'm not a doctor. Um, And like I said, towards the end, George started having nightmares about things that were happening in the house. And on the final morning, January 14th, 1975, all hell literally broke loose. So after what sounds like a really rough night of the dog being sick, Harry's fine, Kathy levitating, George detecting a presence in the room and having nightmares, and the boys claim that there was a monster in their room, and the Lutzes decided to leave. And in the book, it's described that one of the last things they saw was a demonic figure in white at the top of the stairs. Uh, So they left that afternoon, never returned to the house. And the Lutzes have never given a full account of what happened on that last night, so... All we have is what's in Jay Anson's book. Mm. Now, a couple times I mentioned a demon in white. Yeah, I'm gonna say and that seems familiar. Well, that yeah, that also came up during um, one of Ronald DeFeo's alleged stories. You might be about to answer this, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. Which story came first? The Lutzes. Okay, interesting. I'm ninety percent sure. Gonna file that away. Yep. We'll we'll get to get to it a little more in depth um, later. So the Lutzes are out of the house. They refuse to come back. And one could argue that it was less paranormal activity and more that they had gotten in over their heads financially. Fair assessment. They, about a year later, the they sold the house back to the bank and moved to California. So I, it's it's very hard to say what actually happened. But they left all of their shit. And there are a couple people who are like, oh yeah, they're furniture was so worn out it wasn't worth moving it's like all of it all of the kids toys all of their clothes like are you fucking kidding me (laughs) all of their like family heirlooms it just seems really weird that they would just abandon all of it what's our source for that though for them not coming back or that they literally left everything oh that's in multiple accounts um, I don't have like a specific thing to point to that they never came back but as far as I know 
multiple sources that I read said that they just never came and got their shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so after fleeing in January, George and Kathy Lutz, with the assistance of a Channel 5 news assistant, Laura Didio, contacted our favorites, Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were actually called in and asked to come do this. They didn't just show up. No, they didn't show <laughs> up like they did. Uh, in they I do think. that sometimes. They do. They do. Um, so the Warrens first entered 112 Ocean Avenue on February 24th, 1976. So about a year after all of this. Um, Lorraine described an overwhelming sense of sadness and depression throughout the entire house. And after entering the basement, Ed felt a powerful inhuman presence. Uh, he is quoted as saying, It was as if I were standing underneath a waterfall. And he recalled in a later interview, And the pressure was driving me down to the floor, and I commanded it in the name of Jesus Christ, what was there to reveal its identity. I understood right at that point that we were what we were dealing with was no ghost. This was no ordinary haunted house. So following the initial investigation, the Warrens put together a tune squad, if you will, of professional <laughs> psychics to assist them with their findings. Um, so a team from Channel 5 News covered the Warrens investigation on the night of March 6th, 1976. An investigation which you guys might recall from the beginning of The Conjuring 2. Which, I've seen that movie like nine times, I just realized that it is implied that the nun made Ronald DeFeo kill his family. <laughs> because that's the first place that Lorraine saw it. In oh, the yeah, basement that makes sense. of 112 Ocean Avenue. So, from... Welcome to the James Wan Cinematic Universe podcast. See, okay, digression. This is my beef with The Conjuring 2, which is otherwise a fine movie. They just add too much stuff in it. Like, I I feel like it would be a much more effectively creepy movie if it was actually about the poltergeist. Oh, no. And less about the stupid, like, Cracker Jack Man or whatever he's called in The Nun. Like, all that stuff is just a little too over the top. Yes, that's my so, opinion. There's a BBC series with Timothy Spall playing um, oh, the investigator that was already there. Uh, but it's about the Einfield haunting, and it is more true to the actual story of the Einfield haunting. Um, what happened with The Conjuring 2 is that Warner Brothers didn't have the rights to most of the really good Warren stories. Right, yeah. So they kind of had to take one that was, like, The Einfield Haunting is fucking great. Um, I'll do an episode, like, I know I covered it a little in Poltergeist, but it's it's a great story. Um, it's one of my favorite hauntings, if you can have a favorite haunting. But, yeah, they just kind of had to to cobble a movie together that involved the Warrens heavily, where the actual story barely involved the Warrens. Yeah, and, like, I, that's not even my problem. Like, bring the Warrens in and make them part of it fine. It's just that they'd, like, try and shove too many horror oh, yeah. villains yeah. into it. I, I like The Conjuring 2 for a couple reasons, but The Conjuring 1 is a more solid, like, genuine story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's our review. Um, I'm very excited for the third one. Yeah, I was going to say, I I still very much enjoyed The Conjuring 2, but I just, I've never been able to watch it again because it's just like, I just don't enjoy it as much as I do the first one. The the shot where Ed is facing away from the little girl in the chair and the, she's <gasps> yeah. out of focus and she slowly morphs into the old man, like hands down one of that's my favorite great. fucking shots. There's some, yeah, like I said, there's some really good stuff in the movie, but it's all around, like, the Einfield stuff, and it's, like, all the extra stuff that just yeah. ruins it. Yeah. Plus, uh, Patrick Wilson singing um, Can't Help Falling in Love. It's really just, mwah. Patrick, just Patrick Wilson. Just Patrick Wilson. I don't know how to tell you guys this. The Warrens nowhere near as hot as they are in the movie. No. 
Anyways, we're back, way off topic. Back to Amityville. Uh, technically, we're not that far off topic. We just kind of shifted to the left, like, eight or nine hundred feet. It's been a while since we've done, like, impromptu movie reviews, I feel like, so. I remember correctly. At least, still- like, the King Arthur episode where we talked about the movie. We still owe the people a good King Arthur thing. It's still not streaming. Uh, that's right. Uh, but King Arthur Legend of the Sword is streaming on HBO. I did see that. I don't know if that's going to be as fun to comment on as the 2004 King Arthur. It's a Guy Ritchie movie. Like, you know, it's fun. Okay. So, where was I? Oh, yeah. The Warrens put together a tune squad of psychics and um, reporters. (laughs) They invited their friend Mary Pascarella to the investigation. Uh, She considers herself a, quote, time walker. Or a person who is able to sense and sometimes visualize past events in a particular location. I mean, that's a cool trick, but um, time walker? Really? Yeah, it sounds like something that you'd see on the Nevers. (sighs) Just like a Victorian lady who, like, steps into a house and is like, little Timmy died right here. That kind of (laughs) shit. Yeah. If you're not watching the Nevers, you guys are missing out. Hot Victorian ladies with superpowers. Um, kind of like if Heroes was good. <laughs> it's exactly like if Heroes was good, now that I think about it. I never saw Heroes. Um, all right. So, uh, Mary Pasquarella said in a 2002 interview, I began to say my prayers. I was saying Our Father, which is also the prayer I would say in that case, because it's the only one I can remember. Um, you don't remember Hail Mary? I do remember Hail Mary. <laughs> uh, so she also said, I looked out of the door and I was saying Our Father, and there was a group of figures saying Our Father backwards. Ugh. I know. Creepy as shit. Real or not. I would say, like, I don't believe it, but ugh. (laughs) If Warner Brothers would just let me do a movie about this, about this, if I could just have the prequel to The Conjuring 2. (laughs) Uh, So Mary was not the only one who experienced strange events that night. Channel 5 cameraman Steve Petropoulos reportedly suffered a rash of heart palpitations and shortness of breath while climbing the staircase. Me Call too, it an dude. anxiety attack. Yeah. Uh, the Warrens say that they also felt a, quote, cold spot on the staircase, a detail George Lutz has said um, he also experienced. Uh, so during the first seance, Mary Pascarella also became ill and had to be ushered out of the room. Um, she said later, there seemed to be some kind of black shadow that formed ahead and moved. And as it moved, I felt personally threatened. Man, I wish she had written the book. It's like she would have done a good job with it. Um, Another psychic, Alberta Riley, great name, uh, made similar claims during the seance. Uh, She said, it's upstairs in the bedroom. uh, What's here makes your heart speed up. My heart is pounding. Uh, Whatever is here in my estimation is most definitely of negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth, said Lorraine Warren. I was going to say that. That sounds like Lorraine Warren. That's very Lorraine. Look out for the new show, That's So Lorraine. <laughs> um, she also said, whatever is here is able to move around at will. It doesn't have to stay here, but I think it's a resting place. The Warrens felt the house could only be saved through a cleansing performed by an Angelican exorcist or a Roman Catholic pr- priest. Uh, George and Kathy Lutz say that they were not willing to take on this responsibility. Also, they tried that. I mean, I guess probably not a full exorcism, but I mean, they got the priest in the building. What do you, what more do you want? George later said, they'd be putting their life in jeopardy. How can you go and ask someone that for a house? Fair. Uh, George and Kathy decided they couldn't risk moving their children back into the house. They returned the property to Columbia Savings and Loan on August 30th, 1976. The couple divorced in 1988, but 
To their credit, they have stuck with their story until the day they died, including taking and passing a polygraph test administered by one of the top five administrators of polygraph tests at the time. Which that I does know nothing po- to sway me. <laughs> I know. Polygraphs are bullshit. So we could do a full episode on how, how much bullshit polygraphs are. Probably. Well, just the number of people who have been incarcerated on bullshit polygraph tests is um, heartbreaking. Here's the thing. A lot of people have accused the Lutzes of making things up, and they probably did. The biggest piece of evidence people use is William Weber, who is Ronald DeFeo's defense lawyer, going on record as saying, quote, I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine, unquote. And this refers to a meeting that Weber is said to have had with George and Kathy Lutz during what they discussed what would later become the outline of Jay Anson's book. So in March 1976, when William Weber sent a book contracted to the Lutzes, a book contract to the Lutzes, which covered a proposed company and uh, detailed the the shares that they would, would receive, which is 12% each, uh, including 40% to a man named Paul Hoffman, who would have been the writer of the book. So Weber sent over this, I'm going to say, frankly, insulting <laughs> contract to the Lutzes. So the Lutzes terminated their proposed venture with Weber because they felt he wanted to trap them with an unfavorable contract. Instead, the Lutzes chose to work with Jay Anson. The contract they signed with Anson offered a better split of 50% each, which, yeah. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So nevertheless, this didn't stop Paul Hoffman from selling two articles about the Lutzes' experience without their permission. Rude. Exactly. So the first article appeared in a New York Sun- in New York Sunday News on July 18, 1976, titled Life in a Haunted House. And the second was titled Our Dream House Was Haunted, uh, which appeared in a 1977 edition of Good Housekeeping. Both articles were nearly identical and were based on experiences that the Lutzes, Weber, and Hoffman allegedly brainstormed in January of 1976. Uh, We're getting into the legal shit now. I don't know if you noticed. So in May 1977, the Lutzes filed a suit against Paul Hoffman, William Weber, and a couple of other people, including Good Housekeeping and the New York Sunday News, Um, alleging that the articles were an invasion of privacy, misappropriation of their names for trade purposes, and negligent infliction of mental distress. All of the suits were dismissed. Really? Yep. I guess that's probably a hard case to prove. It's really hard. Um, So during the course of the lawsuit surrounding the case, Father Pecoraro stated in an affidavit that his only contact with the Lutzes concerning the matter had been by telephone. Other accounts say that Feather, Feather, that, uh, Father Pecoraro did visit the house, but didn't experience anything unusual. And to be fair, the name was changed for the book. <laughs> the claims of physical damage to the locks, doors, and windows were rejected by the next owners of the house, Jim and Barbara Cromarty, who bought the house for $55,000 in March of 77. Barbara Crom- Cromarty argued that all of the um, locks, doors, and windows appeared to be original items and that they hadn't been repaired. Uh, the Cromartys also revealed that the, quote, red room was a small closet in the basement that would have been known to the Lutzes because it wasn't concealed in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of the families who lived in the home since have reported anything specifically weird. And also, in the book, there's a lot of talk about it snowing and being super cold and seeing uh, cloven hoof prints in the snow on New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. I do remember this. Neighbors reported nothing unusual during that time that the Lutzes were living there. It also didn't snow. That's an interesting detail. I mean, also something that could have easily been embellished for the book. It's very cinematic. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's creepy. Um, 
But police officers are depicted as visiting the house in the book and the film, but records showed that the Lutzes didn't call the police at all during the period that they were at Ocean Avenue. There's that. And now we're going to get into a myth-busting section. Don't worry, we're... Huzzah! We're, we're reaching the end of this. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the myth that 112 Ocean Avenue was an indigenous sanitarium, indigenous, sorry, sanitarium, where the mentally ill and dying would be left exposed to the elements to die. There's no record that there was ever an indigenous burial ground or a sanitarium on Ocean Avenue. That sounds like something white people would make up. According to Long Island Native American expert John Strong, many indigenous groups lived along the tidal bays in the area. But these Native peoples have very rich oral histories that they passed down, so if a burial ground did exist in that spot, they would have fucking known about it. (laughs) Also, it is insane to think that a tribe would just leave their sick and dying to the elements. Yeah. Myth number two, which was hugely spurred on by the 2005 movie, a witch named John Ketchum escaped from Salem, Massachusetts during the witch trials and built his house on or near the famous Amityville house to continue his devil worship. It is reported that his body is buried on or near the property. No. No. Not at all. There were no actual witches at Salem. Exactly. <laughs> to start with. <laughs> Let's just start Which, there. Which, I think about it, that was also, like, a plot point in The Conjuring. Like, yeah, the, I know, um, and it makes me angry every time. Yeah, because Bathsheba apparently was descended from or somehow connected to Salem. And I was like, but there are no actual witches at Salem. <laughs> also a plot point in The Covenant, but I don't <sighs> think they ever implied that the events of The Covenant actually happened. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give The Covenant a pass. We should all give The Covenant a pass. No movie has ever been richer in hot men. (laughs) Except maybe Ocean's Eleven. No, I think The Covenant has Ocean's Eleven. No, I was going to say Ocean's Eleven does not have Sebastian Stan and Taylor Kitsch. Oh, damn. We should do a commentary on that. We should get Sadie in with us to do a commentary on The Covenant. The finest film to come out of, like, 2005. I want a commentary that's just Sadie. It's just going to be Sadie, like, sighing every 10 minutes. No, we'll make her talk. But, like, <laughs> maybe we'll watch the movie with her and just make her talk to us. But we'll remain silent. No, that'll never work. But It'll be like when we did As Above, So Below, and I came with a list of prepared facts. <laughs> anyway, so uh, a citizen named John Ketchum did return from Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is near Salem, and settled in Huntington Township on Long Island. While in Massachusetts, this John Ketchum acted as a representative for the local government before returning to Long Island, where his family resided. He eventually became a prominent figure in Huntington before he died in 1697. He was survived by his wife, Bethia, and four children, John, Samuel, Edward, and Mary. Huntington Township, it should be noted, is more than 10 miles from Amityville. Zero connection to the sky whatsoever. Terry. Um, lastly, the Ketchum family has no information regarding any John Ketchum being a witch. Also, the house was built in 1924 after a family bought the land to construct a bigger home for their family. The house is not that old. No. It's Dutch colonial style, but it was built in the 20s. And finally, another myth that's really fucking weird. The Amityville house resides on an ancient cemetery that was either abandoned or cursed. No, no it wasn't. In 1913, William E. uh, Eardley was commissioned by the state of New York to copy down old cemetery and Bible records because many of the Amityville cemeteries were either abandoned or neglected. These cemeteries were either moved or relocated to bigger incorporated cemeteries. However, there was no report or indication of any cemetery uh, residing on or near the property. 
And I will say, to the Lutz's credit and Jay Anson's sketchy credit, that they didn't purport any of, like, this witchcraft I was going to say, this all sounds like stuff people would have made up to try and justify once it became a story. Yeah, it, after that, and then it got pulled into the 2005 movie, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, this, is, that, this one isn't the Lutz's fault. So, are you interested in knowing what I think happened? I desperately want to know what you think. Okay. Should I, should I say what I think first? Because I yes. think it's going to be... Yes. I don't believe any of it. I think okay. they made it up the end. <laughs> okay. I have really no nuanced take on it, but I really want to hear what you have to say. Okay. I've been giving this a lot of thought and just like watching interviews with the Lutzes and something I noticed about like watching the Lutzes is that when they talk about it, this is going to sound stupid. They do look haunted. Like Mm -hmm. they did experience something upsetting. And I don't know if it was just years of being called like liars and stuff after they made a decision, but I'll get into it. I believe Starting at the very, very beginning, uh, Butch DeFeo experienced a mental break induced by multiple drugs, abuse, mental condition, and murdered his family. And his initial reaction was to confess to the murders and admit that he couldn't stop himself. He knew what he was doing, and he thought to dispose of the evidence. So I think that his first non-mob-related admission was right. Like, yeah, it, it didn't seem like they forced a confession out of him. I think people wanted to believe that it wasn't him. Because at that time, it would be... Not unheard of, but just, like, very unusual for someone to just kill their entire family. Yeah. So... No one wants that to be the actual reason. Exactly. So, I think his initial confession was right, and then he got that jackass of a lawyer who, like, pushed him to, like, make changes, and, like, his mental illness just went off the rails even further. Yeah. Um, So, that being said... When the Lutzes moved in, I think they did experience some things. Definitely not to the extent in the book, but I think they experienced something. Like, every maintainable lie has that little bit of truth in it, and I think mm-hmm. the murders, like, left a mark on the house that they could feel. And later on, Chris, um, one of the, the Lutzes' kids, mentioned that George was abusive, and it's possible that they left because the bad vibes in the house were affecting the family, like, a lot, or... Like, George was experiencing, like, very heavy depression after they moved in because of, like, money troubles um, or just, like I said, a very bad vibe in the house. Yeah, and I don't want to interrupt your manifesto, oh, but no, like, that's something I've been, like, thinking of is, like, how much of, like, how much of that could be attributed to just generalized anxiety and change and... Oh, I, think I mean, they just—I didn't know. Like, this is the first time we've heard that they just recently been married, and like these kids are dealing with a new stepdad. Like, hearing he was abusive, probably. Like, I just wonder how much of it was. From what I hear, he wasn't really the abusive drama of the family. until they moved. Um, yeah, like no one really mentions that he was in until until they moved. So I think a lot of it was like mental distress. Like they were having mm-hmm. money issues. The house was—they were over their head. So I think that did play a large part in it. But I'm also. Yeah. Very much of the belief that, like, hauntings in the, like, the intelligent sense, like, the demonic sense, I don't believe in. But I do right. believe yeah. that, like, if something that awful happens in a place, like, that's not just going to go away. Because, mm-hmm. like, if you go to, I don't know, this is not going to be a great example. If you go to, like, Auschwitz. like That was the first thing that came to my yeah, mind. <laughs> it's not just going to feel like a place. Like, you are going to be able mm-hmm. to feel that weight. Yeah, I think things like that sometimes leave a mark. Yeah. And whether that's, like, a human perception thing or, like, some actual energy we can't explain, like, I'm open to what that is, but it makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, residual hauntings I find to be more believable than intelligent hauntings. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so after all of that happened, William Weber got in contact with them. Like this is after the the seance with the Warrens and everything in seventy six. So William Weber got in contact with them in, I believe, an effort to help cook up a story to help DeFeo, like, get his sentence overturned. I believe that William Weber thought that if he could get a good story out of the Lutzes, like, a really good story that would help absolve Ronald DeFeo by way of, like, a demon made him do it. That kind of, like, utter bullshit. (laughs) They met, and they did come up with a big story, because the Lutzes were in financial trouble, and this was probably a really good way out for them. But then William Weber sent them that bullshit contract, and the Lutzes were like, "Mm, no. And Weber got mad and trumped up the accusations uh, that they made the whole thing up. Yeah. So then the Lutzes got into bed with Jay Anson, who did also embellish a story for his book, because he made millions of dollars off this book. (laughs) So, yeah, I believe that they saw something. There are plenty of reasons for the house to, to be affected. And the Lutzes did admit the book was not entirely factual, but maintained that something did happen to them and they didn't really like talking about it. Yeah. And it also doesn't hold water for me that like they purposely made up the story so they could sell the book and make millions of dollars. Like that's not a guarantee. (laughs) Well, no. And like they didn't have book offers when they had like the Warrens and the news people out there. Mm -hmm. Like there had to have been something. And I also think that the paranormal investigators did experience some things much like I believe the, the Warrens to an extent I think the Warrens were very, very dramatic people, and they definitely fluffed their stories up. But again, that's one of those things where I don't think Lorraine one day was just like, I'm going to be a fucking medium. Yeah. I think she was a little more sensitive to things. As for the reason why haven't other people experienced anything, that house was blessed out its fucking ass. (laughs) Priests, maybe other ceremonies. It's also possible that activity fades over time and the new owners were so unwilling to believe it that they just didn't notice it. Kind of like in Beetlejuice where Catherine O'Hara didn't see the ghosts. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like we said in our Science of Ghosts episode. Like, if you're inclined to believe you're going to see things, whereas if you're not, you probably won't. So there is, it is possible to be in denial, more or less. The Lutzes did practice transcendental meditation, and Chris Lutz, not Lutz anymore, but he said that his father, stepfather, had read up a little on demonology, so they were aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that made them a little more perceptive if, like, some little stuff did happen. Yeah, and, like, or even if, of- like, little stuff that happens and then gets blown up in your head because that's what or you're assuming it's a demon. Yeah. They're stressed from a new move. They know what happened in the house. They could have been having really fucked up nightmares. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's what I think happened. I think the Lutzes did experience something, but it got blown way out of proportion for many, 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 many different reasons. But yeah. I don't think the story came out of nowhere. I think Ronald DeFeo's stories came out of fucking nowhere. I think he's just an asshole. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to explain away his because he is a guy trying to get out of jail and will say anything like in order to... Yes, I think he did have some mental issues, and he was also on a shitload of acid. So for all I fucking know, a white demon did come to him and tell him to murder his family, but that was also drugs. Yeah, not demons. Well, I hope you guys... I'm so sweaty right now. (laughs) You got really worked up on this one. Ah, God. I mean, I had read the book, and like I thought I had strong opinions on it, and then, I don't know, I went down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) I went full, like, ancient aliens guy. Like, 
I can definitely say this is the most comprehensive overview of the whole Amity thing I I personally have ever heard. So, oh god, bravo. there are so many different like interviews with like DeFeo's ex-wife that he married for the sake of like filing that motion, and just a lot. But I don't know. I hope you guys learned something, and if you have theories, tell us about it on on Twitter at Afternoonified and Instagram at Afternoonified, and you can even email them to us at afternoonifiedpod at gmail getafternoonify.com you can buy merch you can donate i promise that the new merch design from avalon is coming soon um i still just haven't figured out what we're gonna put it on so many options so many options if you want a pillow with it uh that's weird but Don't i tempt think me. I, can, <laughs> I can make that happen um so yes that's that's all i got when you watch the movie it's just it, it's not really based on anything real no. fun uh it's a good ghost story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I forgot the name of the guy in the original one. He's hot. James Brolin? Yep. Yep. He has the beard and everything and, like, the 70s beard and it has Lois from Superman. She's cute. So, like, do that. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. We love you. So below listeners, it's your boy Shane Hosey, and I want to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Hosey Hustle. Every other week I sit down with a guest and we talk about product and service submissions from you, the listener. Terrible ideas, like cigarettes for dogs. And we'll sit there and we'll talk about how to make them ready for the big scary economy. Basically, we take bad ideas and we make them worse. So why don't you give us a listen? The Hosey Hustle, part of So Below Media. Now get back to the show you were originally listening to. You probably like it a lot. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.